If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, please. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. I almost titled this sermon from Magi to Wise Guys. Wise Guys has its own connotation, so I tried to avoid that. We're going to talk about the story, and there's, there's three things that I want to tell you this morning, and there's three things that we see in the lives of the Magi that change things, but, but ultimately, I, I want to tell you, first of all, that this is a story about searching, and I'm going to read the text, and I want you to see that. It's a story about searching. There are three ideas, and the first one is, has to do with seeking, but really, the entire story here is about seeking, and there's two other things, but, but let, me, let me read the text, and we'll get into this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem, Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I'm going to talk about, just mention briefly later on the joy, but, but can you just look at that in, in verse 10? I think it's so powerful. It says, when, the, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I tell you, they rejoiced long before they saw Christ. I, I think... Maybe it matters, and this is just my own sort of <laughs> improv introduction. It, it matters as people of God that we not wait until we see him to rejoice for him. Because there's going to be seasons in our life when we are not going to have seen what he's promised us, but we have a choice to make whether we're going to rejoice over the promise that we see evidence of in the future or, or whether we're going to demand of God to do the things that we want him to do before we actually treat him like he deserves to be treated. Joy is the result of the person not who has seen the Christ child, but who knows that he's there, whether you've seen him or not. And joy in your life will be the result not of you seeing the fulfillment of the promise. That's called relief. But joy actually comes when you look at the situation in front of you before you've seen the evidence of all that's been promised you. And you say, I know it's true even before I've seen it to be true. I see the evidence all around it. I see that God has told me where to go. And before I've gotten there, I choose to be joyful. I will allow my soul to be filled with beauty and resurrection hope even before I've seen the end of things. I will live in the spirit of the resurrection before Jesus returns because he's told me that he returned. And Jesus 
Jesus says, I have given you this sign. I have risen from the grave. That means that you will be raised also. The whole New Testament points to this idea that not because we have it all together, but because Christ has already gone before us, we rejoice. Some of y'all are waiting on joy to happen when joy is not needed, but joy is needed now. It says that in the end there will be faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13 says that. It doesn't say anything about joy. Joy doesn't happen after we've seen him face to face. That's relief, that's grace, that's love, that's beauty. But joy takes place in the now, before he's returned, before we've seen him fully, before like it says in 1 John 3, or 1 John 2, that we have seen him and known him as he is and then we are made like him. Before that happens, there is joy. We live in a deep culture of joylessness. People are depressed and anxious over things because they don't know what's going to happen. Can I tell you, they saw the star and they knew it was going to happen before they saw it happen. The evidence was enough. The proof was not required for the joy. The evidence that they were pointed in the right direction was enough for the joy. And I just implore you this morning as we get into this, that was a long introduction and really had nothing to do with the rest of the sermon, but I felt like I needed to say it. So y'all are here and I've got a microphone and so we're gonna go on forward, amen? <laughs> Everybody is searching. I think the question is not whether we're searching or not. The question is, are we doing it wisely? Everyone is searching for something. I believe it was the great prophet from the 80s, Sammy Hagar, who said everybody's searching for something, something to fill in the holes, waiting for something to come into focus before things get out of control. Hopefully I misquoted at least part of that so you think better of me. We're all searching for something. We're searching for something. I had read this story, and this was actually new to me. I was telling Nisha about it in the car. A 49-year-old German man named Erwin Kruss. Is that right? We had to look up the pronunciation. Anyway, we'll call it Kruss. He had watched on television most of his entire life television shows that caused him to be fixated on the city of San Francisco, California. He lived in Germany, had never been to the States, and so at 49, he took what was basically his life savings, and he said, I'm going to plan a trip, I'm going to go to San Francisco, and I'm going to see this city that I have loved, all these television shows, they've been centered in San Francisco, I love the architecture, I love all, everything about it, and I just want to see it with my own eyes before I die. And so earlier this year, in July of 2021, Erwin Krutz decided to fly to San Francisco from Germany, from Frankfurt. So he gets on the plane, now, I'll tell you, this is part of the backstory. Erwin, his career was as, as a, uh, he worked at a brewery. So on the plane, he got a little muddy-headed from some decisions that he made as they were crossing the Atlantic. And when they had their stopover, he didn't have to get off the plane, but they had to refuel, and they refueled in Bangor, Maine. This is a true story. They refueled in Bangor, Maine. And one of the stewardesses that had befriended him and had tried to talk through the language barrier with Erwin, she was going to get off. That was her stop. She wasn't going on to San Francisco. She was going to get off at the airport there in Bangor. And so she looked at him and said, have a great time in San Francisco. Well, as muddy-headed as Erwin Cruz was, he thought, we're in San Francisco. So he disembarked. He, he got off the plane and came into, got in a taxi cab from the airport and said, take me downtown. So they took him to downtown Bangor, Maine. <laughs> Irwin quickly found a bar and grill where he supplemented his own foggy headedness a little bit more. 
And then he began to walk the streets of Bangor, looking around at all of the sights of Maine. For three days, for three days, he walked around Bangor, Maine, thinking and believing that he was in San Francisco, California, and suddenly it registered in his mind. He said, you know what? I've seen different things on the TV shows than I'm seeing here. What, I must just be in a suburb of San Francisco. So he called another taxi outside of the front of that same bar and grill, and he got it. He said, I want you to take me to downtown San Francisco. And the cabbie looked at him and said, you're crazy, get out of my cab. And so he made him leave the cab thinking that he was just drunk and had no idea what he was doing. And so he stood there on the side of the road, had no idea. He went back inside the bar and grill, despondent because he didn't know what he was going to do. And the waitress there came to him and through the language barrier, she was trying to understand but couldn't. And so they found out that there was a lady, I want to give her credit, in, in the town in Bangor, Maine, named Gertrude Romine. Romine spoke fluent German. And so the waitress called her and said, we got a guy over here that only speaks some sort of Bavarian dialect. I can't talk with him, but he seems lost and he needs somebody to help him. Will you come down here? Gertrude drove down to the restaurant, sat across the table from Irwin and said, what is it that you're trying to do? And he told her, I was coming to San Francisco and I just want to go downtown. All of this is great, but I think there's more. And she said, you're right. She took him into her home. Her and her husband fed him, gave him a place to sleep that third night. And then suddenly, by just calling around, the San Francisco Examiner, the newspaper there in California, picked up the story. Then it became a national story. And then it became a global story. And the San Francisco Examiner paid all expenses to fly Irwin for the last four days of his trip all the way out to San Francisco, and they treated him like a visiting dignitary. The man who didn't know the difference between Maine and California, they treated like a dignitary. He got to meet the mayor. They took him on a tour of all of the sites in San Francisco. They paid for his meals. They put him up in a nice hotel. He had everything he could ever dream of for the last four days of that trip. (laughs) But alas, he was due back at work at the brewery. The mayor presented him with a formal proclamation before he left, declaring this, these words, San Francisco does exist. <laughs> In the paper, it says that when he boarded the flight back home, he actually made a sign and hung it around his neck like a little kid that said, please let me off in Frankfurt. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? We're all searching. We're all searching. So some of us are doing it well. Some of us are doing it wisely. Some of us are doing it foolishly. If you look in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 2, this is where my three ideas come from. It says, in going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They fell down and they worshipped him. There are three things that define the activity of the Magi, and all three of them are seen in that text. And these are three things that I want you, if you write them down or or commit them in memory or text them to yourself, I do that all the time now. I get more text messages from me than anybody else because there's things I want to remember and I just don't carry pen and paper like I used to. But as we close 2021 and as we enter 2022, I think these questions become guiding questions for us. I think they help us 
look in the right places to see what it looks like for us to enter this next year pursuing wisely. And the first question is this, what are you seeking? What are we seeking? Verse 11, it says, I just read it, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. The ironic thing about this text is that there's actually two groups of people looking for Jesus. It's not just the Magi. We, we read about them first in Matthew 2, but, but really, after that, when they come into Jerusalem expecting to find a king in the capital city, they come through that space and they meet with King Herod and they ask him, where is this one? We've seen the star. We know that we're pursuing something great that God has revealed from the heavens. What is it that we're supposed to do now? And, and Herod says, you know what? I'd like to find him too. See, there's two groups searching for Jesus here. The Magi were following a star based on their understanding of the prophetic writings. But Herod joined the search because he was threatened by the possibility of losing the power he'd attained. Look at this. Both of them are looking in the same direction. But they're looking for very different things. Both of them are looking in the same direction, but they're looking for very different things. There's an enormous difference between seeing and seeking. It's an enormous difference between seeing and seeking. See, seeing just means that you perceive something. You know there's something out there. You've directed your gaze in a certain direction, and so now you see something. But seeking actually requires action. Vision must become action. Sight must become movement. And I think it's so powerful because in our culture, and maybe more so in the church than in any other aspect of the culture, it is so easy to see Jesus and not seek him. Those of us that have grown up in church, those of us that have been Christians for a while, who have been saved long enough, can I tell you and say this lovingly? I think there is, there is always the temptation for those of us who have known the Lord for a long time to become inoculated to the great power that he actually has in our life. We see him. We hear the sermons. We sing the songs. We come together Sunday after Sunday. We sit in the right seats. We wear the right clothes. We have the right books on our shelves. But we're really just seeing something and not seeking something. The word there that says they saw him is the word herisco. And it doesn't just mean to gaze upon something. It means to find something that you've sought for. Not just to see, but to seek. And I'll say this. We're not wise because we see something. We are wise because we seek someone. It was this morning I was thinking back through these notes as I was kind of pacing around praying a little bit. I, I was reminded of the story in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was called out in the wilderness. Moses had run from Egypt. You remember the story because he had beat a man to death with his bare hands. He was afraid of what might happen. His own people were sort of raising up against him and, and so he didn't know what to do and so he ran. He fled out into the wilderness and spent decades out in the wilderness and he wound up with a family and then he wound up tending sheep and so he has all of these sheep that he's trying to move together and if you've ever, if you've had kids, cats or been in leadership, you know that it's a challenge to lead any group of people anywhere and so sheep are even dumber than people and I don't mean that in an ugly way. That came out wrong but you know, you know what I'm saying. And, but he looks to his side and he sees that there's a bush that's on fire. Maybe that's not odd. But what is odd is that that bush remains on fire and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. 
It's burning, but it's not consumed. And so in Exodus 3.3, Moses says, I will turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. Now, what that means is this. I've already seen that it's there, but I'm going to walk away and go take a look at what's actually going on. I'm going to leave all the sheep, and they're going to scatter, and I'm going to have more work. It's going to be a longer day. It's going to be a late night tonight because I'm doing this, but I choose to pursue what I have seen. And he walks over to that bush. And because he turns aside and actually seeks the great thing that he has seen in verse four, that's when we see the voice of God exploding into his life to say, Moses, I'm calling you. It was not in seeing the burning bush that God could call him. It was in the seeking the burning bush. It was in when he moved toward the thing, when he put action to vision. It was not just about perception. It was about purpose. He had to move or else things would not go well. Don't just tell me what you see, tell me what you seek. What's the focus of your life? As you look back on this year, what has the focus of your life been? What are you driven toward? And let me ask it this way. What would your calendar, your bank account, your GPS and your search history tell me is the most important thing in your life. See, because you can tell me that you see Jesus and you can tell me that you have seen truth and you can tell me that you know the right answers to the questions I might ask you, but deep down, what are you actually seeking? Not just what are you seeing. That's the question. And I want you to see, and I'll, I'll spend more time on this point than any other, so don't, don't get too nervous, but... The fascinating thing about this text is that Herod calls together the chief priests. Look at, look at verse 3 of chapter 2 if you still have your Bibles open. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him. I want you to see this. Herod had a Bible study. Herod said, hey guys, I've got some new information, i got some questions, so he calls the big guns. All the theologians, the temple professionals, the religious people, the ones that were full-time, he says, I need you guys to get together in a room, open the scrolls, and tell me what's going on. we got to sit down and have this Bible study together because I've heard some stuff that's troubling me in my spirit. Here's the, here's the thing. Herod wasn't having a Bible study to uncover truth. Herod was having a Bible study to figure out how to suppress the truth. See, read the Bible all you want. But if you're just seeing it and not seeking it, then you will read it to maintain your life at the status quo level that you currently have instead of reading it to let your life be transformed. So I don't care how much you read the Bible or how many verses you can quote. If you don't come to the text, if you don't come to the Lord, if you don't come into his presence with a tender heart saying, I know I need to be changed. I know I need to find something new. I know that I need the freshness of your presence and your spirit in my life. If you are simply coming to be affirmed, then you're coming more like Herod than you are the wise men. And I know that stings, doesn't it? It stings to be associated with this king of all the kings. But he opened the scriptures and didn't let them change him. He opened the scriptures to try to change God. Our culture does this all the time. And I'm afraid that in the church we do it in a more subtle way. 
As you come into 2022, as I come into it, can I tell you, I've prayed this all week long. I don't want to search for what I already know. I don't want to search to be affirmed by God. I want to seek the text. I want to hear the word of God. I want to sing the songs that are going to open me to be transformed, to be changed, to grow, to mature, to become more by, the, by this time next year than I am right now. I want to expand in his presence, which means there's probably some things I'm going to have to take aside. There's some things I'm going to have to crucify in my own life. There's some things I'm going to have to put to death and put on some altars. Can I tell you, for you, I believe it's true as well because it's true of all humanity. If you're not willing to let the text read you, then you're not reading it right. Are you actually seeking God? Or are you seeking to keep things the same? This is the question. Hmm. What are we seeking? What are we seeking? Second question is this. What are we missing? Look in verse 11 again. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down. It says that they knelt. That word knelt is the Greek word pipto. Not pepto. Some of you are looking for after all of your gluttonous Christmas activities. But pipto, it's a different word altogether. And pipto means to descend from a higher place and come to a lower one. And I tell you, wisdom embraces the right posture. And wisdom demands that we be willing to humbly change our perspective so we can see what God has provided for us. Perspective is powerful. I'd read this story about the college and NFL football coach, Jimmy Johnson. And it was when he was with the Dallas Cowboys he had done this, I believe it was in preseason. I'd never heard this before. I read this earlier this week. He had a, a two by four and he laid it on the floor of the team meeting room and he asked several of the players to come over and step on that board and then walk heel to toe, heel to toe across the length of that board. They were all able to do it. These are people that train, that work out, that deal with balance on a daily basis. It's, it's what they do for a living, and they were all capable of doing it, every one of them. They could walk across. And he said this. He said, okay, now, here's what we're going to do after we come out of this room. I'm going to take this same board. I'm going to put it on top of the training facility between two of the buildings, and I'm going to ask you to walk that again. No volunteers. Perspective changes things. You might be able to walk across a plank laying on the ground, but when you look 100 feet below you and there's nothing but air, suddenly walking across that plank feels different. Same plank, same feet, different perspective. See, what the Magi did that was so powerful and what reveals wisdom is that when they walked in in all of their pomp and all of their regalia, with all of their gifts, they did not stand up and present to him It says that they knelt. Now the word worship means to kneel as well. But it means to kneel before a dignitary because of the honor you are giving the position. The word here, pipto, simply means to descend. It it means to move from a higher place to a lower place. I want you to hear me. Why did they do it? Because they were talking to a baby. It's different when you have kids. 
standing over them saying something or coming down to their level saying something. It's different, isn't it? It's different when you have children and you want to play with them. You can play with them standing up. Or you can actually have fun by getting on the floor and rolling around and wrestling with them. Now, at a certain age, that gets tough to get up, doesn't it? The difference is perspective. It's perspective. I think some of us are so dead set on our way that we refuse to humble ourselves and, it's, and, and have a different perspective of what God is trying to do in our lives. And so we miss what would be a wise journey. We exchange wisdom for foolishness, not because we're not in the right place and not because we haven't pursued the right things, but because we refuse to attain the right posture. Arrogance, James 4 tells us, has no spiritual benefit at all. He said God rejects the proud, those who refuse to kneel, those who refuse to see from a perspective that's not their own, those who are addicted to their own opinions and preferences, God opposes, and yet the humble he draws into himself. They knelt. They knelt. A new perspective can create a new reality. In 1 Samuel 17, you don't have to turn there, most of you will know this story, but I found it fascinating as I thought through this, that David never has to change his perspective when he comes to the valley of Elah to go into that valley with Goliath. The first time David shows up and hears Goliath taunt the Israelites and defame the name of God, David says, I'm ready to roll right now. Like he's ready to go scrap immediately. It's King Saul that's pulling him back and says, put on this armor. It's the generals who are saying, wait a second, I don't know if we can trust you. It's his brothers who are saying, you're just a shepherd. Why don't you shut up and get in the back of the, back of the line? It's all of them that are trying to tell David what he should believe. But David says, I know what I can do here. His perspective doesn't change. But listen to me. The moment that the rock leaves the leather pouch and lands in the skull of the giant, though David's perspective does not change, Everybody on that hillside, on Israel's, in Israel's army, their perspective changes. The Bible says clearly that after Goliath goes down, suddenly all of Israel becomes braver than they've ever been before. Do you hear me? When our perspective changes, suddenly there can be victory where we thought there was defeat. David goes and kills this giant and thousands of people flood into that valley, whereas just one day ago, none of them wanted to go into that valley. David created a different way of seeing their enemy because David stood in the place of tension. Jesus shows up in a place of tension, in a world of darkness and in a world of silence, and the star lets the Magi know that something is changing. Jesus creates a different perspective, and the Magi kneel to see it from his angle. I told you a couple weeks ago, when you see things through God's eyes, it changes the way that you see everything. When you hear God's side of your story, it changes the way that everything sounds. And I just wonder, are you missing something? Have you missed something that God wants you to have because you refuse to be humble in his presence? Because you refuse to kneel, because you refuse to see things differently. 
Monday night, we had gotten together with some friends. And I remember saying, I can't remember what we were actually talking about, but I remember saying, I think somebody was making fun of me, which happens a lot when we get together with friends. (laughs) But I remember basically just explaining what I had done by saying, I'm getting old. I don't want things to change. I like things like I like them. And I've said it a couple times before, and I've heard myself say it. And I think that's always the struggle with people who are growing more and more mature. Maturity brings stability, but stability can create an idol of safety. We don't want to do it different. We don't want to receive what God actually has for us because we like it the way that we like it. But what are we missing because we like it that way? That's my question. What are we missing? Are you missing freedom? Are you missing peace? Are you missing joy? Are you missing the salvation of God? Are you missing grace? Are you missing the glory of God in your life? Are you missing the presence of God in your life because you like it how you like it instead of simply being willing to humble yourself and assume a different perspective, a different posture and seeing things differently? See, this all goes back to a similar thing that happened with Herod because we have to see our own life and say, okay, if what God has promised me is not what I'm experiencing, how else should I be looking at it? How can I change? Because listen, some of us are pursuing God because we think he's lost instead of us. Either that didn't make sense or y'all just took that one on the chin. I'm not sure. It's like we're chasing after God so we can give him the list of our good ideas that we've been writing down over the last 10 years. God doesn't need your ideas. God's asking for your surrender. Will you humble yourself? Will you kneel? What are you missing because you're not? Third, what are we worshiping? What are we seeking? What are we missing? And what are we worshiping? You know, it's interesting. The Persian word that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter two to identify these travelers, the magi, It is used at least four times in the scriptures, in Daniel chapter two, in Matthew chapter two, in Acts chapter eight, and in Acts chapter 13. And three out of the four of those instances, it is used negatively. It is used to call people magicians, sorcerers, or astrologers. And in fact, that seems to be the reason we call these travelers by that name of magi, or magus is the plural, because They were magicians, sorcerers, or astrologers. Maybe all three. However, in most of our English translations, we don't translate that word sorcerer or astrologer or magician. We translate it wise men. Why? What is it about this text that changes that word in the way that we understand it? It had to do with what they were seeking, that they were willing to kneel, and that they became worshipers. So you can start out however you want to start out. But if you'll pursue Jesus and if you will kneel before him and if you will worship him, you don't have to end up in the same way that you started out. So I I know we, we have the expression, wise men still seek him, right? But I think wisdom, at least according to how I read this text, 
is not a qualification for those that would seek Jesus, but wisdom is actually the description of those who are seeking him. Do you see the difference there? Somebody say amen to tell me you did. Here we go, just Pentecostals back in the house. (laughs) You don't have to be wise to seek Jesus, but if you seek him, you will be wise. See, it's not this qualification. I've got to write this down on my resume. I'm a wise person, which means I'm qualified to seek Jesus. No, no, no. Just set out in in pursuit of the star. Set out in pursuit of the promise. Set out in pursuit of the hope. Set out in pursuit of what he has told you is true. Set out in pursuit of the person of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, the thing that makes everything so much better. Just set out in pursuit of it, even if you don't understand it, even if you haven't felt it yet, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And in setting out and pursuing it, you will actually become wise. Because wisdom is a description, not a qualification. What makes you wise isn't where you sit on Sundays or how much of the Bible you can quote. And what makes you wise isn't what you've convinced people of by your words or where you've come from. What makes you wise is who you're pursuing. It's who you're kneeling before and who you're worshiping. To kneel gives us the proper view, but to worship aligns us with the proper action. That's the difference between those two words. And, and so I, I was reminded also, I'm almost done, none of so if you would please come. It's like a record. <laughs> In Matthew chapter 13, there are these twin parables of the treasure hidden in the field, and the pearl of great value, great price. Great value is the Walmart brand, isn't it? I heard myself say that, and I realized I don't like the way that sounds, because that pearl was not a knockoff, but anyway. (laughs) And in that text, I know that we see that text as those are parables of the kingdom. That is how we how Jesus sort of frames them. All of the parables of Matthew 13 are parables of the kingdom, but, but these two parables uniquely are parables also of worship and value. Because in both of those parables, you have someone coming into a place where they see something that suddenly captures their heart, their attention, and their passion so greatly that they're willing to give everything that they have, everything that they have, simply to attain to these things. The traveler in Matthew 13 comes into the field walking through that field, realizes that there's a treasure in that field, digs it up, finds it, looks at it, assesses its value, covers it back over so nobody else will find it, runs back home, sells his house, sells all the material possessions he has, goes and finds the owner of that field and gives everything that he has for that field. I think the the implication of that parable is that he paid over value for the field because the owner of the field didn't know there was treasure in it. There seems to be this idea that he's trading something of lesser value for something of greater value. Hear me now. Even though the lesser value thing that he traded was everything to him previously. Let me try and say that better. With the pearl of great price, maybe it's easier to understand. A merchant is selling these pearls. And a buyer comes up and sees that there is one pearl worth more than every other pearl. And he says... If I don't have this, then I'm missing the opportunity to have everything. And so he says, I'll give everything that I have for this one thing. Hear me now, because what you have 
is worth more than everything that I have. And this exchange benefits me. I can give you everything that I have and I'm still coming out on top. Can I tell you, there are very few things in life that you can say that about. There are very few things in life that you can say, if I give you everything that I have, I still come out on top because of what you give me. But this is one of those situations where the wise men show up in Bethlehem. They see the Christ child. They kneel before him. And every gift that they have brought is not too much to give in exchange for that moment of worship. Here's the other side of this. I want you to hear me. They don't receive anything in return in terms of tangible acquisition. Do you see this in the text? They're not giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh so they can get a treasure chest that Jesus somehow miraculously, you know, pops out of, out of, out of, out of the, the, the manger there. They simply give, and in giving, they realize that the giving of those gifts is the reward because they're putting things of great value in front of one of infinite value, and that exchange will always nourish the heart more than ever receiving something tangible in return. Listen to me, what are you worshiping? What is it that so captured your heart and your mind that you could give everything to it and still you'd be the one coming out on top because the giving of all of those things is the reward to be in the presence of that one. I, I believe, and I say, I believe there are a lot of people in the church who have not gotten to this place. I believe there's a lot of people who sit on pews who know verses, who sing songs, who, who have been to the altar, who have, who have prayed a prayer of salvation, who have not yet been to this place where they've seen something so great that they're willing to give everything. This is why we have nominalism in the church. This is why 70% of our culture to this day, as far as I can read in the stats and surveys, still believes that there is a God who created things at some level and who still sort of rules and reigns supreme over the universe. At least around 65 or 70% of people in our country still believe that. And 14% of the people in our country gather together as a community of faith to worship. You know why? Because worship isn't about a slow song and worship isn't about hearing a great sermon. Worship is about having found something that's so great that you don't mind giving your entire life to it because you know that the more you give to it, the more you're actually receiving just through the act of giving and honoring and being in in the presence of that one. Have you found that? See, I think coming into 2022, nothing, and this was an old quote by, uh, by uh, Finney, he said, nothing will sustain us except a revelation of God to our souls. No mental acumen, no excitement, no nothing will ever sustain the fire and passion of our lives other than a revelation of the glory of God to us. See, when you've been in his presence, suddenly nothing that you have seems to be worth all that much, be it gold, frankincense, or myrrh. I know there's symbolism behind what they gave him, but they gave him all of it because to be in the presence of the eternal king meant that there was nothing that they would not give just to be in his presence and to please him and to know that they had been in that place of his glory. And I tell you something, some of you need that coming into this new year. Some of you need an awakening in your hearts so that giving doesn't become painful for you. If giving becomes painful, you don't need another sermon on stewardship. You need a revelation of the glory of God in your life. If you don't want to serve in the church because you don't have time, 
You don't need somebody to badger you on the phone constantly saying, hey, please show up or please serve. You need the glory of God to be revealed to your heart because when that happens, suddenly you're not wondering, should I give? You're asking, am I giving too much to go back home? Am I, you know, am I giving away the farm in this moment? Because your heart has been captured by the eternal fire and flame of the beauty of God. And that's what makes people wise. That's what changes someone from just a magi to a wise man. Because if you become a worshiper of God, it means that you have seen God, that you've knelt before him, that you've sought after him and found him. And it changes everything about your life. What are you seeking? What are you missing? And what are you worshiping? What are you seeking? What are you missing? And what are you worshiping?